Section 16 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 16 Cerberus. I was walking through the Hong Kong Lunatic Asylum when my attention was attracted to a gaunt, wild eyed individual who appeared to be stealthily following our every step. I am a nervous man, and the gleam of almost ferocious cunning in his eye disconcerted me. I mentioned the matter to my guide. "'Oh, he's quite harmless,' said he confidently. "'The poor fellow murdered his two children and slew a cat, the family pet, during a fit of insanity, brought on by excesses and some strange drug. But he's as docile as a lamb now.' He passed on, and a few moments after, all my guide's attention was diverted to some other part of the ward, I felt a light tap on the shoulder, and swung hastily round to find myself confronted by our friend of the previous encounter. He was gesticulating wildly with a sly leer of intensest cunning at the warders broadly turned back while he tried to thrust into my hand, with signs of great secrecy, a roll of paper. In order to humor him, or more, perhaps for fear of a scene should I exasperate him by refusal, I accepted it with an equal show of profound secrecy concealing it in my breast pocket, at which he slunk away apparently well satisfied. In the painful interest of the scenes I afterward witnessed, I forgot completely the little bundle the madman had thrust into my hands, and it was not until evening, when searching my pockets for my cigarette case, that my hand found and drew forth the roll. I was about to throw it carelessly on the fire, as the idle freak of a demented mind, when my eye caught some writing on it, and I undid the string that bound it, judge of my surprise on finding it, that it was a genuine manuscript, consisting of several closely written sheets of asylum notepaper. The last three sheets crossed and recrossed in a manner that called for considerable care in deciphering them. Many years have passed since I first perused this manuscript and locked it away with a shutter in my desk. I give it now to the world just as it stands, unaltered except for the insertion of a few stops where the maniac in his frantic haste had forgotten to punctuate it. I have the less compunction in making this extraordinary revelation public, as I know that the principal actors in it have passed away to a larger stage, and even in the memory of the older inhabitants of Shanghai, the details of that terrible crime will be but a misty, elusive recollection. As to whether the madman's ghastly story is true, or merely the hallucination of a disordered intellect that seeks to account for what it has done, will never be known, and each must draw his own conclusions as to its probability. They say here that I am mad, the cowardly curse, pretending that I am not responsible for my actions, and so to keep me incarcerated in durance against my will. Nor will they allow me even to go to the wife of my bosom, who needs me, who must need me, in her loneliness and grief. Oh, it is a terrible thing that a sane man should be thus helplessly in the power of eleven raving lunatics, for lunatics they are, insane, mad as the proverbial March Hare. Yet they have the telling superiority of numbers, and we four of us must perforce submit with what grace we may to their wild fantasies. But I bear them no malice, only pity them, for do they not say that those with a mind unhinged ever fancy themselves sane and everyone else mad? Therefore it is but natural that these poor souls who call themselves doctors and warders should act as they do. Just now they have the power in their numbers. They are as three to one, but some day, some of them may be called away, out of hearing of the other's cries, and the odds reduced, and then... But it is not to tell of this, and so perhaps show them our hand, that I have purloined sheet after sheet of notepaper. For they allow me to write letters, though I am fully aware that the accursed hounds read them through and tear them up as they fall into their hands. But a while ago, I wrote a letter to the Prince of Wales, congratulating him on his recovery from a severe illness, and they told me they would post it. Oh, they were cunning, those madmen, as madmen ever are. But I was more cunning than they, and outwitted them at their own game. For I watched and saw them read the letter to the end, then with a smile of devilish triumph, tear it to bits and throw it away. And when they told me they had posted it, and I should have a reply in a few weeks, they thought that I believed them, but I was laughing slyly to myself, for I knew... And this is the way they treat private correspondence with one's personal friends. 
Is this not proof enough? If proof were needed that they are insane? Even now, as I pen these lines, I can see them watching me with a fiendish leer, thinking I see them not. For when I look up, they hastily turn their eyes away, trying to look unconcerned. And I know what they are waiting for. They are waiting greedily for me to finish my letter, that they may find a moment's hellish amusement in its perusal, ere they burn it. But they will be disappointed, and I gloat over their disappointment. Cunning as they are, they will be outwitted once again, for while they wait with their smirking offers to post my letter, I quietly conceal the old sheet and commence anew, until I can see them wonder impatiently when it will be concluded. Oh, the cunning of the maniacs is deep, but they are no match for me. So they leer and watch and wait, while I go on calmly writing, for it is no mere letter that I am inditing. But the relation of the events of a night so wildly horrible that I doubt the power of mortal language to express its profundity of horror. Were I mad as these raving lunatics grinning so derisively around me pretend, would I not have ample excuse for any mental aberration I might show? But you shall hear my story and decide for yourself. Some day, when we have succeeded in overpowering these maniacs and putting them under the restraint that should be their portion, and which with a fiendish refinement of cruelty they now inflict upon us, I may have the opportunity of placing these frightful facts before the world. Till then they must remain the gruesome possession of him into whose hands these sheets may chance to fall. It is many months or years ago, how many I cannot say, that I was living contentedly with my wife and little baby girl at Suva, the chief town of Viti Levu in the Fiji Islands. I had business in the law courts there. I was... I was... I cannot now remember what position I held. It is strange how unretentive my memory has become on some points, how clear, terribly, agonizingly clear on others. I can remember there a beautiful house stood far out on the road that, passing through the town, skirts the shores of the bay and runs round the point, still beside the seashore until it ends abruptly opposite to two outlying islands that are used as quarantine station for the Indian coolie immigrants. There were no other houses near us but one, that one belonging to a Dr. Wilson, a medical missionary connected with the London mission. The next building was the little church, newly erected, which stood at the top of a steep hill leading up from the road beside the beach inland. The first event connected with that epoch of horror that will close only when the last fluttering breath has fled from my tortured body was the finding of a little kitten. The proprietor of the pier hotel and myself were strolling in the cool of the evening on the jetty which stands almost opposite his establishment and at which the steamers used to load fruit for the Australian mainland, when we heard a pitiful mewing coming from the vicinity of a crate of bananas that had arrived too late for shipment by the outgoing steamer and had been left on the wharf for the night. We both crossed to the spot and, shouldering aside the crate, disclosed a little kitten. If it was a kitten and not a fiend in feline form, crouching in terror at our feet. It had evidently strayed ashore from the Union Company steamer that had been lying there that day, and had been forgotten in the hurry of departure. The loneliness and helplessness of the poor little thing appealed to me, so I told my companion of my intention of taking it home and caring for it. Picking it up in my arms, we turned and walked home, soothing the fears of the terrified little thing as we went. And here... While cursing the devil-inspired impulse that prompted me to take the brute beneath our roof, let me pause to note a peculiarity in its appearance that at the time struck in my mind a note of ominous warning, a warning that disregarded has haunted my waking moments and been with me in my dreams ever since. The creature was obviously quite young, yet of a remarkable size, with a head as large as that of a full-grown cat. But it was its color or rather the absolute negation of color that struck me with vague, superstitious uneasiness as I raised it in my arms. It had been intended by nature to be a black cat or whatever animal it was, but instead of the glossy, lustrous coat one usually associates with such animals, this one's fur was a dead, dull, black without one glint of luster. Black as soot or the depths of the Plutonian night, with never a gleam of reflected sunlight 
It absorbed the light that fell on it, as in after years it absorbed the joy and sunlight from out my life. Nor was there a white hair about it to relieve the intense blackness of its body, while from out its head shone two large malignant green eyes, the iris of which, without any visible variation in the intensity of the light, expanded and contracted as it looked at you. But it was its blackness, its horrible, somber blackness, that in the first moment of our acquaintance almost repelled me. However, I felt compassion for its loneliness, and so in an evil moment I brought the kitten home. My wife went into raptures of delight over the magnificent promise of the creature. "'Why?' she cried, clapping her hands in childish glee. "'It has a head big enough for three kittens!' "'Perhaps it is three heads rolled into one and covered with one skin,' I replied with a fanciful smile. My wife knitted her brows in thought and drummed impatiently on the table with her fingers. "'What?' she asked at last. "'Was the name of that three-headed monster of olden times?' "'Cerberus,' suggested I. "'Pluto's famous hound?' "'Then—' "'The very thing!' I cried, well pleased with the idea. "'We will call him Cerberus.' "'But Cerberus was a dog,' remonstrated my wife. "'No matter,' I answered cheerfully. "'He is black enough to atone for his feline descent.' "'So Cerberus he was called, "'and never surely did hellhound more deserve to be posted "'for all eternity at the gates of Hades "'than did this monster.' I have said that our home stood just beyond the turning that led up to the church, which, together with the minister's house, were then the only buildings on that half-formed road. As was our frequent custom, my wife proposed that evening, after we had dined, that we should stroll up the hill and pay the parson a visit. His wife and she were close friends, and it was my habit to smoke a pipe with the parson while his lady and mine discussed household matters. Nothing would satisfy my wife this evening— but that we must take Cerberus with us to be shown round, and we must set out with our newly acquired pet in my arms. But neither the minister nor his wife were in the house, so thinking we might find them in the church next door, where a light glimmered, and where we knew, it being a new edifice, they were wont to spend their evenings in the erection of the draperies, we crossed the little garden and went in. The tiny church, however, was as deserted as the house we had just left. As we walked through, no trace could we find of the truant pair we sought. There had been a christening there during the day, and the font still stood with its sanctified water before me. What fiend of sacrilege urged me to it, I know not. But while my wife's back was turned, I stepped to the font, and dipping my hand in the sacred liquid, I liberally besprinkled the kitten I held, pronouncing as I did so with hilarious profanity the formula of baptism. My wife, attracted by the kitten's vigorous protest, turned toward me, and with a look of consternation on her face, snatched the struggling little beast from my arms, exclaiming as she did so, "'Oh, Stanley, how can you be so wicked?' But I laughed her fears lightly aside. "'It will give him a greater chance of growing up a good and moral cat.' The entrance of the minister and his spouse put a stop to further discussion as to the rights of it. So, leaving Cerberus to the ladies— who had already commenced a detailed survey of the trappings, we men retired to the house for a smoke and a chat. Six months only had passed since our acquisition of Cerberus, and he had grown into a magnificent cat, already larger than any of the neighboring tomcats he developed a fierceness that became known at all the feline conventions of the district, until very few callant knights of the roof cared to court a dispute with him over a lady cat's favors. Nor was it only with antagonists of his own breed that he came to blows— he attacked dogs of any size or kind with a boldness and ferocity that in most cases caused the dog to remember that he who fights and runs away will live to fight another day. In one or two of these encounters, Cerberus got badly mauled, one in particular in which a large bulldog was the participant, resulting in grave injury to our pet. He sent the bulldog away howling and blinded, one eye hanging by its tendons to the socket, and the other terribly mutilated, but not before the dog had seized his head, and as his teeth grazed down the skull, laid open the scalp from behind one ear to the vicinity of the opposite eye. The dog also succeeded in grasping with his teeth the cat's ear, the whole cartilage of which was torn away at the base of the skull, leaving the oral orifice gaping and unprotected. Cerberus, with his dead black coat still without a particle of gloss, was now no handsome object, and he grew positively repulsive when one of his eyes became diseased and rotted away. 
the whole eye changed to nothing but a protuberant ball of white fat, in the middle of which where the pupil might have been, but slightly higher was a splotch of vivid red with jagged edges that gave the sightless orb the appearance of looking lugubriously up to heaven. Visitors who saw him for the first time positively shuddered at the repulsively demoniacal aspect of the brute, with the livid, hairless scar across his head, one ear torn completely away, and that horrible, sightless eye with its blood-red center on the white ground that seemed always to be glaring up into one's face. Add to this the lusterless intensity of his black coat, and one need feel no surprise that strangers avoided him. Yet to us he was gentleness itself and sagacious to an astonishing degree. He attended me wherever I went about the house, and on several occasions, when walking along the lonely road that led round the point, I was astonished to find Cerberus trotting contentedly at my heels. He had become much too well known by this time to have the slightest fear of molestation from passing dogs, while the Kanakas look upon his hideous form with a superstitious dread that sent them scuttling across to the other side of the road when it became necessary to pass him. Cerberus shared this affection for me with our little daughter, whom he would allow to pull his tail or box his ears with impunity. A liberty he would grant no one else, nor could anyone else approach him as Little May did when he was eating. The Samoan servants could not pass within six feet of him at such times, without eliciting an ominous growl and an erection of the hair on his neck that boded ill to him who should dare to interfere with his repast. The child, on the other hand, he permitted to crawl up to him, and actually to drag the bone that he was gnawing from between his claws, without the faintest protest, while he waited contentedly licking his lips, until such time as she should choose to restore it. And now occurred another episode, trivial in itself, but which was destined to have a terrible influence for evil on my afterlife. Dr. Wilson, of the London Mission had just returned from his monthly medical tour of the principal islands that formed the inhabited portion of the Fijian group, and the magnificent mission steam-yacht, the John Williams, going his morning rounds in his carriage, as he jocularly called it, and had come round to me for a smoke and to hear what had been going on in his absence. We were standing by the fireplace, our elbows on the mantel, for though it is never cool enough at Suva to warrant a fire— my wife had, when our house was being built, insisted on having fireplaces made in the rooms. It makes them look so much more homelike, she had said. Even had we wanted to light a fire in the grate, it would have been an impossibility, for the chimneys were mere dummies and did not pierce the roof. We were standing, I said, with elbows on the mantelpiece and backs to the grate as though actually enjoying the blaze, when the doctor drew from his waistcoat pocket something wrapped up in paper and handed it to me, asking, By the way, have you ever seen this stuff before? I unwrapped the paper and looked at it. It was a small globule of compressed grayish-brown powder, little larger than a pea, with a peculiarly pungent odor. What is it? I asked suspiciously as I fingered and smelt it. Some of your beastly physic? No, Wilson's style grew didactic. That Palula is five moderately large doses of narcotic drug, which the natives claim holds the key to a temporary glimpse of paradise. I laughed derisively. They all claim that charm, I sneered skeptically. Opium, bung, hashish, they all are the same, all keys that fit the gates of paradise. And all are at best but ill-fitting skeleton keys that draw back the bolt for an instant and irreparably injure the lock forever after. Nevertheless, this drug is rather peculiar, said Dr. Wilson with scientific enthusiasm, in that it acts, so far as I can ascertain, directly on the cerebellum, paralyzing all motion while the cerebrum, the seat of the sensations and volition, is invigorated and stimulated to greater activity. The consequence is... I prompted. The consequence is that... While the thinking and feeling part of the brain is unusually clear, the part that controls the motions of the muscles is utterly incapable of performing its functions. And the subject lies there, so to speak, dead drunk, so far as his body is concerned, but unusually sober in mind. Is that where the paradise comes in? I queried, laughing. Being sottishly drunk and knowing clearly that you are drunk? Wilson shrugged his shoulders. What do they call it? I asked after a pause. Daisy. It is made, I believe, from the roots of a tree, solely by an old chief at Lavuka, who, since the British government has preemptorily stifled his appetite for eating his fellow natives, consoles himself with paralyzing them. 
I looked at the drug again and sniffed it. How do they take it? I believe the conventional method is to crumble a few grains and allow it to dissolve on the tongue, swallowing a few mouthfuls of water after it. Poison? I asked again. No, he replied. That is the curious thing about it. The natives swear that no quantity of it will kill, and I personally have been making experiments with very large doses on rabbits and dogs. An unusually large dose appears to prolong the period of catalepsy, but the subject wakes up apparently more refreshed than before he went in under its influence. It is a deeply interesting drug, and I should like... He was continuing when a deep growl from Cerberus under the table caused him hastily to drop the Palula into an empty ashtray that stood near him on the mantelpiece and swing round in consternation, exclaiming, "'By Jove, I forgot all about your beauty of a cat!' and brought my jippin with me. In the ensuing distraction of our frantic efforts to prevent Cerberus attacking and demolishing the little terrier, the baleful drug was forgotten. "'I don't believe that brute is a cat at all!' exclaimed the doctor, when after infinite trouble he had succeeded in capturing the sorely threatened Jip and imprisoning him in his arms while I thrust Cerberus unceremoniously out at the door. "'What is it, then?' I inquired with a smile. "'Goodness knows, but I should think, judging by its size and ferocity, that there is more of the panther than the cat about it.' Wishing me a hasty good night, he went out with his dog, leaving the Palula, where— in his agitation he had let it fall, and it was not until I was about to retire that I bethought me of it. I had no mind to allow it to remain where it was and run the possible risk of its falling into the hands of little May. Despite the doctor's assurances that it was in no wise a poison, it was an experiment I felt disinclined to see tried upon my child. So I took the drug up to my room with me. I was taking a last cursory survey of it before depositing it in safety in a drawer for the night, when a horrible, seemingly irresistible curiosity, demon-inspired, prompted me to court the experience of a new sensation. I glanced through the open door into my wife's room. She was sleeping soundly, and with a fascination I did not attempt to combat, I examined the drug anew. This was the turning point in my life. Had I but thrust the vile temptation aside at that fateful moment— I should yet have been a prosperous man, happy in the love of my children, instead of the physical wreck under the fiendish dominion of madmen that I now am. Deaf to the warning voice within that cried out to me not to trifle with so potent a bondage, I crushed a few grains of powder into my palm and placed it, not without some trepidation, on my tongue. It dissolved with a sharp, acrid taste, and as I inhaled the pungent fumes generated in my mouth, a violet fit of hiccoughs convulsed my frame until I had hurriedly to seize the water bottle from my washstand and swallow with avidity the major portion of the cooling liquid. Then I lay down and waited calmly, yet curiously, for the drug to act. Suddenly a fearful throbbing commenced, in my brain growing louder and more distressing each moment until it resembled the whir of the wheels in a child's clockwork toy. I felt frightened and repentant, and strove to call for assistance, but my tongue clave to the roof of my mouth, and no sound but a horrible rattling issued from my throat. Frightful, racking pains shot through my body and limbs, traversing it in every direction as though it would tear me asunder, and I groaned in anguish. After a while, the whirring of wheels in my giddy brain seemed to be growing fainter and more distant, as a cold, clammy sweat broke out over me and stood in beads upon my brow. Could these be the pangs of approaching death? I asked myself in vague terror. The maddening whir became slower and slower, then gradually subsided to a pulsating tic-tac, tic-tac, not unlike the same clockwork toy that has nearly run its course. I struggled to raise my hand to my face, but the frantic struggle I dreamed I was making existed but in my mind, for the muscles were rigid as iron bands, and not the fraction of an inch could I stir. The pulsing ceased as suddenly as it had begun, and I felt myself sinking down, down, down. And now a great quietness fell upon me, and I lay calm and peaceful as a sleeping babe, my eyes wide open and everything around me distinct and clear. But a marvelous change had come over the once familiar objects that surrounded me. Rings of beautiful light, concentric, 
revolving hovered in the air, and a soft, ruby iridescence diffused itself over everything around, while flames and jets of bright party-colored splendor played fitfully in and out among the ornaments of my dressing-table. I lay watching the play of gorgeous colors in a trance, a beatific delight impossible to describe. This was indeed the Empyrean, the region of pure fire of which the old Greeks dreamed, but having not the secret of Kandazi, failed to realize. I quivered with intensity of delight as my spirit leapt forth to meet the trailing vapors of bright-hued glory that hovered around me. Never before had my eyes beheld or my mind conceived as possible such exquisite harmony of colors, such rich blending of magnificent hues, yet every object in the room was distinct. I could see as I lay there in ecstatic enjoyment of the miraculous display, the multicolored curtains wavering to and fro in the fitful breeze, more I could think clearly and calmly could reason. But all was transformed, glorified with the grandeur of tint. The poet's brightest dream pictures as painted by the hand of the creator on the clouds of paradise. How long this aesthetic feast of color lasted I know not, but I slowly and gradually sank from the sublime heights of Elysium, to which my soul had soared, into a restful doze, and when I stood again my limbs were free. But how sordidly cheerless the room looked after my brief flight through the Empyrean! I lay with half-closed eyes, shivering with disgust and loathing. My first impulse was to fly again for refuge to the drug. Life seemed not worth living on this sordid earth, after the brief glimpse of God's possible, snatched through the agency of Kandazi, and here it was that the terrible malignant power of the drug made itself felt. It was not merely the attraction of a few hours of divine mental elation, but a corresponding repulsion from all that before I had been able to tolerate, if not enjoy. It was the comparison of the tawdry, sober-hued earth, with the bright-tinted vapors of ineffable glory that made me long to fly again to the embrace of Kandazi. Need I say that ere a week was out, I was completely recklessly under the charmed spell of the fiendish thing, that I was as firmly riveted to the seductive allurements of Kandazi as ever was lover attracted to his divinity's side. Soaring on my newly acquired vision wings only during the stilly hours of the night, I had thought that I could evade discovery indefinitely. But one night my wife came into my room to tell me of something that had slipped her memory during the evening, and found me lying stark and stiff, pulse and respiration reduced to its minimum. I was perfectly conscious of all that went on, and longed to be able to make some sign to assure my wife that all was well, but even a slight movement of the eyes was denied me. I heard her exclamation of horror as she bent over me and tried with dread in her face to shake me gently into wakefulness. I heard her hasty summoning of the servants and the hurried directions to one to fetch Dr. Wilson. At this I raved in silent fury. Dr. Wilson would see at once what was the matter. That the fit my wife thought I had fallen into was nothing but the effect of Kandazi. He would probably remember, too, that he had left the little globe of powder there when he departed in such haste and I dreaded his knowing I was a victim to the thing. Why had I not confided in my wife, I asked myself wildly, as I lay there awaiting his arrival. I should have told her, and she would have understood, and so saved this humiliating exposure. Yet it was nothing to be ashamed of. It was not harmful like opium or morphine. But fortune favored me. Dr. Wilson had been called away to an urgent case in the neighboring island of Kandabu, some sixty miles from Suva, and the boy had had to ride on to the only other medical man in the place, the prison doctor, who dwelt on the jail premises at the far extremity of the bay. By the time he arrived, the effects of the dose had passed away, and I roughly told my wife to leave the matter in my hands, and not to mention a word about my symptoms. When the doctor came, I passed the matter off lightly as having been a fainting fit, which my wife and her solicitude had taken much too seriously. The poor man went off, grumbling deeply at having been brought all that distance for nothing, while I, I felt relieved that the matter had passed off so easily. But the confession was necessary if I was to avoid a similar contingency in the future. So I reluctantly took my wife into my confidence. 
She was inexpressibly shocked at first until I had assured her again and again of the utter harmlessness of the drug. Then as I convinced her, dilating on the entrancing visions the drug conjured up, she evinced a desire to try some herself. But this I peremptorily declined to allow, and my determined stand against her wishes helped me to realize that perhaps the drug was not so innocuous as I had tried to make myself believe. Thus a year passed away. I had to send my Samoan boy periodically to Lavuca on the island of Ovalo, a distance of thirty-eight miles, when the necessity arose of replenishing my stock of Kandazi. Cerberus, meanwhile, had grown into a magnificent, albeit repulsive, animal, but his gentleness to ourselves was extraordinary, and was the cause of frequent comment by our friends who shrank from him in fear and disgust. He was now twice the size of the largest cat I have ever known, and was beginning to be a little troublesome in that he had got into the habit of now and again making a meal off the fowls belonging to the neighboring natives. Yet they stood far too much in dread of the somber brute with the one saturnine eye to do more than lodge a feeble plaint with us about his depredations. About this time my house was gladdened by the birth of a son. Everything went well until the christening ceremony, when as the minister was about to dip his hand into the font, my wife suddenly paled and uttering a quick, half-sobbing cry snatched the infant back to her breast. There was a slight stir of astonishment among the onlookers as the minister gently disengaged the babe from the arms of its trembling mother. But without further untoward incident, the ceremony came to a close. On my angrily asking my wife at the finish of the service the reason for her singular behavior, she told me she could not bear the thought of her baby being baptized at the same font that I had desecrated by my mockery of christening Cerberus. Something, she said, had warned her as she stood there that it was wrong, that evil would come of it, harm to the child. I laughed derisively at her childish superstition, but I had noticed that the animal had trotted behind us to the church, and crouching beneath an unoccupied pew had been an interested spectator of the scene. At the time it was given me no concern, for Cerberus had often followed me out of the doors, and now a vague uneasiness, a dim sense of foreboding that I could not at the time account for, settled upon me as I pondered. I look back on that time now from the ghastly clearness of after-knowledge, and wonder that I could not have divined the cause, but I put it down to a slight morbidness of fancy, brought about probably by the reaction of my master drug, and the incident was all but forgotten. My wife, however, from the time of our little son's birth, took a strange dislike to the cat that had once been such a favorite. Not that she ever alluded in my presence to the change in her feelings, I doubt if she ever acknowledged it to herself— but once, when together, we went up to take a loving look at the little stranger, and found Cerberus sitting on a chair close by, gazing appreciatively with his solitary eye at the cradle, my wife gave a startled little scream, and utterly forgetful for the moment of everything, rushed forward, and seizing the gigantic cat, dragged him to the door and thrust him out. For a moment she stood petting, looking in wild alarm round the room. The next she had recovered herself, and was trying in evident confusion to laugh away her peculiar fright. Cerberus, she said, with a smile that trembled about the corners of her mouth, had looked so like an evil spirit as he sat there with that horrible blind eye and one ear gone, that, woman-like, she had not stopped to reason. And now I was transferred by the colonial office at home to Hong Kong. But as to how long we stayed there, or the incidents of that period of my life, I confess my mind a blank. I know that we brought Cerberus with us, though we had to come from Suba to Melbourne, thence to Sydney, and so to Hong Kong. I know also that my wife begged me not to bring him with us, implored me to give the brute away, but she could advance no definite motive for her wish to be rid of him, only that she was afraid of him, so I laughed away her fears, and Cerberus accompanied us. I can remember also that we lived high up from the sea, so different from our former house that stood almost level with the waters of the little bay at Suva. Here we could look down on the harbor with its shipping, and the great steamer seemed like a child's discarded toys lying here and there on the blue floor. Then we came to Shanghai. Here again I strive earnestly, yet vainly, to recall why we so suddenly left Hong Kong. I have a dim, haunting notion that it was in some way connected with my infatuation for Kandazi, for I was now habitually fettered in the shackles of the drug. Sometimes I find myself trembling on the verge of recollection, and I pause, laying aside my pen. But as my mind leaps forward to grasp the elusive memory, 
it recedes again into the black abyss of utter forgetfulness. I recollect, or dream that I recollect, seeing my gentle wife looking at me with saddened eyes, in which lurked something akin to fear. And once, coming upon her unawares, I found her sobbing bitterly. Why, I cannot tell, nor would she enlighten me. On finding herself thus discovered, she hastily dried away the tears, and with a tremulous little smile said, God would bring it all out right in the end. God? Were he not powerless to meddle in things mundane? Would he leave me here in the absolute power of maniacs who will not even allow me to communicate by letter with my friends outside? At Shanghai we took up our residence in a small flat in Grange Road, and here for a time life ran smoothly, for I was freed somehow from my irksome duties at the courts, and I never went to the office any more. Yet one haunting dread I had that my Kandazi, my precious drug, would run out, and that I would be unable to obtain more. I brought what seemed an ample supply with me on leaving Fiji, but as my system became slowly inured to its action, I found myself with dismay compelled to consume it in ever-increasing doses before the languorous sensation of beatitude would creep over my spirit. Though physically well enough, mentally I was in a state of constant rebellion at the tawdry, cold cheerlessness of my surroundings. After the glorious brightness of my visions, finding myself eagerly looking forward to the time when I might lie down to the enjoyment of the entrancing bondage that chained me. Ever less able to resist the temptation to advance the hour of my temporary release from dull earth by a few minutes at first, then by half an hour, latterly by leaps of an hour at a time. And now I come to the part of my history that is stamped upon my brain, every little act of it, in letters of fire more brilliantly inexpungible than the glowing incandescence of the dream fires themselves. Would to God, if God there be, that I could forget something of that awful night, that my memory could slip but one iota, but one little incident of those dread hours of horror, and so lessen be it by ever so little the terrible burden of white, glowing recollection that is slowly searing its way into my brain, driving me to madness as certain as the lunacy of these leering curs around me who call themselves doctors and warders. But I cannot forget. Not one instant of that time can I shut out from before my burning eyes. Not one sound I heard in that fearful charnel house of death can I restrain from hammering its way anew and ever anew through my ears to my throbbing, bursting brain. Other things I can forget, things I have desired to remember have slid from me into the Cimmerian darkness of oblivion. But the memory of this dread night stays with me and will stay with me until the angels mercifully wash it from my mind with the lith of eternal rest. A cousin of my wife's was coming out to Shanghai, and it was arranged that I should go to meet the boat at Wusong. My wife also would have come, but she did not care to leave the children alone, perhaps for the whole day. She was to come out by the SS Hamburg, but when we heard of the vessel's departure from Hong Kong, we found that she was not due at Wusong until late in the evening. This would probably mean coming back by the special night train, but to me it would mean infinitely more. It would mean the retardation of the only moments of happiness I now enjoyed by several hours. The thought was unbearable. To defer the courting of the blissful colored visions by several hours? I could not do it. I shrank from the mere contemplation of such dire hardship. And wretch that I am, I complained that our coming visitor was a nuisance, that I was not feeling particularly well, and so forth knowing full well that if I showed any reluctance to going, my wife would be ready to offer to go herself. Which she did. Of course I demurred. It was my place to go to Wu Song, and I could not allow her to tax herself for the journey, and so allowed myself reluctantly to yield. She went down in the early forenoon, lest the boat should arrive unexpectedly. But as by four she had not yet been signaled at Guslaf Lighthouse, my wife wired to me that she intended to stay at the Wu Song Hotel, in order to be upon the spot on the vessel's arrival in the morning. What cared I, I thought, though she had to stay down there a week, so I were left in company of my Kandazi. Before I went to bed that night, which in the delights of anticipation was much earlier than usual, I had the children's little cots moved into my room so that I might be the better able to keep an eye upon them. 
I keep an eye on them, forsooth. Sometimes I laugh out wildly at the sheer humor of the thing. Were it not for the pitiable imbecile calling himself Warder, who seems to watch my every movement, I could lay down my pen now and laugh anew. Uh, but I digress. In my anxiety to lose no moment of the precious time, it must have been full three hours earlier than usual that I dismissed the Amma and boys and lay down after first swallowing with placid satisfaction my accustomed potion. I remember... Ah, how well I remember, as I lay there waiting for the drug to waft my spirit away, seeing Cerberus pacing with stealthy step to and fro in the room. Twice he stopped and raised his head with a savage snarl, so that I wondered much at his conduct, fearing he might awake the little ones who now slumbered so peacefully beside me. Gradually the somber tints about the room began to brighten, and I knew that Kandazi was catching my spirit up in its alluring power. The gas jet first caught the glamour of colour as I saw a beautiful halo of deepest purple and vivid scarlet playing round the brilliant golden flame. I felt my limbs were growing rigid, for my hand was hanging over the side of the bed, and as Cerberus stopped his stealthy pacing and came up to lick it, I tried to remove it from the rasp of his tongue but could not. Then, as my brain grew to its accustomed clearness under the stimulating influence of the narcotic, I remembered with a pang of remorse that in my eagerness to attain the summit of my gilded Parnassus I had forgotten to feed the poor brute. It was a task either my wife or myself invariably undertook, for we dared not at such times trust his savage temper with the Chinese boys. Cerberus was getting old and cantankerous, and at the best of times he was a dangerous brute when meals occupied his attention. And I had forgotten to feed him. I felt sorry for him, for he had but the one meal a day, and now he would get nothing until the following morning, for the lightest movement was already beyond me. So Cerberus went on licking my hand until I felt his rough tongue rasping away the tender skin from a recent wound on its back. But I did not heed it, could not heed it, for I was wrapped in ecstatic contemplation of the iridescent colors playing before my entranced eyes, and every muscle was stiff and immobile. Suddenly, I know not how long after, I became dimly conscious that, through the particolored rings of light, Cerberus was standing on the bed at my little May's feet, his hair bristling, his tail lashing the great black sides in angry spasmodic strokes. The one green eye was glaring fixedly toward the head of the bed, the blind one as usual staring up with its patch of jagged crimson to the ceiling. While I yet watched, my eyes set immovably in their sockets, the pendulum swing of the tail ceased, and the great black body crouched low on the bed for a spring. I felt a sensation of eerie alarm gripping at my heart, though I did not then realize its meaning. It was a premonition of coming disaster that subsided ere it could be translated into fear. What was the matter with Cerberus, I wondered, and as I wondered I saw— Mixed up with the flashing colors, a huge shadowy body stretched to its full length as it launched itself through the air. Only for an instant, then, it alighted full on my little girl's breast, its giant head partly hid under the little maid's chin. She woke from her pleasant dreams with a scream of terror, a peculiar gurgling cry that seemed stifled and compressed in its utterance. What did it mean? I asked myself again, lying there in rigid immobility. She had never been afraid of Cerberus's caresses. I could see in the dim light her blue eyes, widely open, staring wildly protuberantly upwards. I longed to get up and see what was the matter, but I was bound, fettered. Presently the slight body beneath the sheets quivered and writhed, and the form of the cat, nestling so close above her, rocked. Yet its head remained down. What did it mean? And slowly the little pulse that remained in my inert body stopped and my eyes grew dim until clouded with horror. Cerberus had his great yellow fangs buried in my child's throat and was greedily drinking her life's blood. The dream colors were growing deeper now on the white coverlet, growing crimson that before had been palest gold, crimson sprinkled and scattered. No, no, no! This was no vision. This was real. Oh, God! Oh, God, my little May's blood! And I lay there staring, staring. 
A deep growl recalled me from my swoon of anguish, and the mists that were gathering before my eyes ran back again into nothingness. The ghoulish creature was standing erect, its tail swinging again from side to side, the fangs and cruel snarling lips imbued in gore. Then it stooped its head, and fixing the terrible claws in her tender flesh, gripped with its teeth the slender throat of my child, and I... I lay there in all the rigidity of death, yet without the merciful oblivion death bestows, watching with appalling clearness this monster deliberately rending and tearing the throat of a human being, and that being my child. My reason must have tottered for a moment in its seat, for I began to seek excuses for the grisly deed. Poor Cerberus, good Cerberus, he was thirsty and hungry, he had not been fed. Good, gentle Cerberus, perhaps now he would come and tear open my throat and dim my eyes again to the horror before them. But no! He went on rending the white flesh, and there came to my ears the soft rasping of skin and flesh being torn asunder. Presently he raised himself erect once more and looked around. His eyes fixed itself on the neighboring cot, and with angrily lashing tail he sprang across the space that separated the little baby from me alighting by its side and commencing leisurely to lick the face and throat of the sleeping infant. "'My God! Not that!' I shrieked, yet shrieking uttered no sound. I fancied I was wringing my hands in my anguish, yet my limbs were motionless and stiff. "'Not that! Not that! Spare me at least my baby, my little innocent child!' The baby awoke at the touch of his tongue and smiled confidingly up into the blood-smeared face above, crowing with infant delight whilst I lay in that frightful nightmare existence, watching, watching with stilled pulses for the time when, tired of his play, the fiend would... Suddenly I saw the shoulder blades project from his back as he set himself against the pole. Then the same insistent ripping sound, the same raw nauseating odor of fresh blood as he tore causelessly at the tiny throat. Causelessly from sheer ferocity and lust of blood, for he was long surfeited with the holocaust. Little spots of chameleon hue, tinted by the rainbow vision colors, were appearing silently on the floor. I knew not whence they came, for I saw them only as they showed forth on the boards. Then the colors faded swiftly away, faded all but one. That one was crimson. I saw their origin. It was the spurting blood of my babe. I could detect it now in its crimson stream as it rose from the bed and fell in gory fountain through the air. The spot on the floor had run together and formed a pool, and still I gazed wide-eyed and could not stir. I prayed madly, frantically to God. Ah, how I prayed for but one moment of that glad free movement that hitherto I had despised, that I might tear the monster from my little one's throat. And when he would not hear me, when he in callous apathy turned his back upon me, I prayed to the demons, the fiends beneath whose bondage I groaned, to grant me their slave one minute's respite from the fetters that shackled my limbs in utter helplessness. I prayed that it might at least be given me to close my eyes to shut out the sight of the ghastly tragedy that was being enacted before them. Oblivion, blindness, death itself, I cared not what, so I should not be compelled to gaze upon this foul harpy of Eblis and its horrible carnage. Oh God, how joyously I would have welcomed death at that moment, how I would have smiled and striven to kiss the hand that dealt me the stroke of mercy. I tried in my anguish to imagine that I felt the stilly languor of death stealing over my spirit, that to my failing sight the room was growing dim and indistinct, but I could not. Every object, every little spurt and splash of blood shone out bright and clear. There was but one tint all-pervading, the hue of my children's blood, revolving rings within rings, fires that leapt and flashed around my babe's bodies, all were red, red. Suddenly something within my brain snapped. There was a loud report that reverberated through and through my being, and on its fading echoes, amid a whirring of grinding, tearing wheels, I sank away into... I was crouching by the bedside beside the stiffened corpses of my little children, 
laughing low as I dabbled my hands in the rapidly clotting gore, raising great strings of it between my fingers to the light when next morning the boy came into the room and retreated again in terror to the flat below. Cerberus was lying curled at the foot of May's bed, glutted and content, purring loudly as he drifted off into a sleep of satiety. Very gently I caressed him, coaxed him to the other end of the bed, laughing softly the while. At last I had lured him onto May's still breast, and he lay there purring forth his satisfaction, the gory head resting on her smooth, blood-stained forehead. Very gently, ever laughing, I disengaged from either side the child's head a thick tress of golden bright hair, now stained so deeply and rank with the reeking odor of earth and rawness. Very gently laughing still, I knotted them loosely over the great cat's neck, retaining the two ends in my hands. Then with a last exultant shriek of triumph, I threw my whole strength into the effort and drew the insidious strands of curly hair tight about the ghoul's throat. It was then that I received the fearful scratches that now disfigure my arms and breast, but I never for an instant released my hold, never relaxed so glorious a game, but drew the strands ever tighter and tighter until gradually the wildly clawing paws were stilled. As with a last spasmodic struggle and a violent shivering, the hideous fiend stretched his somber body in death above the corpses of my children. My blood was flowing freely now, mingling on the bed with the clotted gore of the little ones, but I heeded it not. I laughed in glee to see the glassy green eye protruding so far from the monster's head as far, or farther than the sightless white one with the crimson splash. I think then several persons burst into the room. I cannot remember. I think there was a scuffle as they tried to drag me from the bedside. It is all so long ago now. Months or perhaps years, I must be forgetting. But every few nights that ghoulish black thing comes creeping stealthily through the closed door. Through the wall, anywhere, and clambering upon my bed lies a dead weight across my breast and throat, half suffocating me as I stare in terror up at the hideously deformed head with its one protruding orb of blank red-splashed tissue and malignant green eye. And in its fulsome breath, as it purrs loudly into my face, I smell again the reeking blood of my little children. And though I shriek in horror and cry out piteously to them to come in God's name and take the frightful thing away, they only stand at my bedside leering at me with a smile of bitter mockery and tell me I am mad. Mad? The hounds? Could I have set forth this terrible story with such lucidity? Were I mad? End of section 16